We are continuing a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, often called the love chapter, is, uh, is I think a central part of the whole book of the Corinthians because it, it addresses the core issue, the, the real issue that the church at Corinth has struggled with and it's the reason it's a, such a broken church. They are a church that fails of obedience because they fail at love. They fail at love. And the reality is that we live in a society that has so distorted what love means that it just seemed like a good time to spend some weeks digging into the reality of what Scripture says love is. Um, the, the original, in chapter, as you remember, the, the, the characteristics of love are in verses 4 through 7 in the beginning of verse 8. And the original ones are easy ones. I mean, they're the kinds you expect at a wedding or it's marriage counseling. You know, that love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous. I mean, all of those things that we naturally think of that we have to exercise if we're going to love someone, right? That we have to teach them what it is to be patient by our, no, I don't think that's what it means. But you, you get the jest. I hate masks. Come on, laugh a little. Give me something here. I'm dying. Uh, they, you, you, you. You understand naturally that to love someone means to be patient and kind and, and good, right? Those, those, are, those are intuitive. But today we're going to deal with verse 6, and it's not an intuitive one. But it may be the most crucial one of all of them. Before we get there, though, I want to I describe for you, actually read to you a passage that has always haunted me, and I think it's particularly applicable for right now, for right now. It's in the gospel, John chapter 18. It's familiar. Many of you have read it many times. Beginning in verse 28, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning and to avoid the ceremonial uncleanness. They didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. That, by the way, is very ironic. They are delivering an innocent man up to be murdered, but they want to make sure they're ceremonially unclean. He, he, he has already let you know what really matters to them. It's not what's right and wrong. What matters to them is the appearance of, of religiosity, of the appearance of goodness. And in doing so, he, John is just wanting to set the stage so that we'll interpret this passage correctly. So Pilate, the governor, came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't handle him over to you at all. Notice they don't answer him. That is not a new thing. Choosing not to answer the question is, is something that has been going on a long time ago. He, the, the religious leaders are one, are one of the key groups of characters in the story. And part of what John wants to see is while they have the responsibility to lead the people into what is right and true about worshiping God, in reality, they have a totally different agenda. Pilate said to them, so take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Only the Romans killed by crucifixion. Jesus had said he would be hung on a tree, so that was required. If he had been murdered by the Jews, it would have been by stoning. 
Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others tell you, talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, replied Pilate. Your own people and chief priests have handed you over me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to him, again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner by the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. So Barabbas had been taken part in an uprising. It's almost a comical depiction because, because the characters are so obscenely hypocritical. The religious leaders who supposedly are the ones to lead the people of Israel into the service of the righteous God, to instruct them in what it is to follow God, they in all of their hypocrisy take what they know to be an innocent man and accuse him of things they know that he has not done. So that the very people that, that God had ordained, those offices that were ordained to lead the people to what is true, themselves are lying. I believe that at least a significant portion of the religious leaders knew that Jesus was the Messiah. I think I can prove that from the Gospels. And they intentionally had decided we will resist the work of God. They, they are people who have set their face against the will of God. Frightening. And, and the very ones whom God had called to speak the truth are speaking lies. And then there's the crowds. The crowds are interesting because they're so fickle. Remind you of anything? The, the crowds, only a week earlier when Jesus is riding in and what we call the triumphal entry on the donkey, they are throwing palm leaves on the feet of the donkey, throwing their own cloaks at the feet of the donkey and singing, Hosanna in the highest. Yahweh saves. God has come to save us. And here Apparently, some of the same people are crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. At the very feet of Jesus as he watches their statements. And then there's Pilate, a career politician in the worst sense of the word, who, who consistently throughout his life lives for only one thing, and that is for his personal advancement and his personal power. So that he will manipulate the Jewish people as well as the Roman people, all with the hope of accomplishing only things for himself. And John uses him to beg the question of the story What is truth? See, that's applicable because we live in an age where finding the truth feels almost impossible, doesn't it? 
First of all, in the academic world, through postmodern instruction, we've been instructed now for decades, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is what you make of it. My truth is, which is declining in academic circles because it's utter absurdity. Is, is gravity my truth? Is height my truth? In my tr truth, I'm very tall, right? What's the problem with that? I'm not. A number of years ago when we built this building, um, we had an uh, a incredible designer come in and he, he designed a $15,000 pulpit. And he was stammering around, I think, why, why is it so expensive? It was on a hydraulic so they could go up and down. And I said, are you really building a pulpit because I'm short? Really? He said, well, I didn't want to say it. I said, trust me, I know that. It's... it's um, my truth is I'm tall. Problem is, it's not true, right? And, and so Pilate, this bad guy, begs the question for all of us. What is truth? See, in Scripture, and especially the Gospel of John and the epistles of John, truth is one of the most significant words used because it, it summarizes the very core of who God is. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is inseparable from God, and in Scripture, truth is a non-negotiable. It is absolute, it is knowable, it is real, and it's important. We live in an age where it's hard to even find the truth, right? Have you ever gone on news sites and compared their writing of the same story? It's stunning. I mean, you read, you say, were they at the same event? How can two sources give such desperately different description of what happened? Well, there, there seems to be, throughout our society, no longer a commitment, just a truth. But in the gospel, truth is foundational. And in the character of God, truth is always significant. One of the things that theologians speak of when they speak of the character of God is the simplicity of God, and that is the non-contradiction of God, that, that when God is righteous, he's also loving. When God is truthful, he is also merciful. In other words, none of those things contradict in his character or in his actions, so that when he acts in mercy, it's still in justice. When he acts in righteousness, it's still in love. And And... And when he acts in truth, it is never separated from his goodness. But we live in a day where to, to hold the truth is often seen as something that one should avoid if one wants to be kind. Or to be kind means to deny the truth. And, and the Apostle Paul gets it. Because today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. And in verse 6, we've gone through the patient, kind, goodness, all of those. Now he goes to one that we might not have expected. It says, love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. 
First of all, let's look at those two phrases separately. Uh, both of them are used in other places in Scripture. For instance, doesn't delight in evil. In Job chapter 31, verses 29 and 30, Job is defending his character before God. And he says, if, if I had rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, but I haven't. I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. When Job wants to, def to defend that at the core he is a righteous man, what does he say? I did not take the opportunity to curse those who had hurt me. The book of Proverbs is more clear. Verse, chapter 24, verses 17 and 18 says, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, stumble do not let your heart rejoice or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his away his wrath from them. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't it really hard not to celebrate when bad people have bad things happen to them? I mean, don't you just kind of want to at least, yes. When, when people who have done evil things have difficulty, isn't it natural to at least quietly do a little happy dance. But love doesn't devour, love has no toleration of that kind of evil. I'm going to illustrate some things with silly stories today. When I was about four, I lived on Hankerson Street in Tyler, a little blue-collar neighborhood, little houses, and, and uh, there were big boys on the street. You know, one of them had a 57 Chevy with a, you know, it was really nice, you know, it was, and, and there were other guys that were older, and, and I was just a little burr-headed kid in the neighborhood, and I remember one time I came home with some caps. Now, many of you are too young to understand what a cap is. We used to have, first of all, they used to give us all guns, and then wonder why we were violent, and, and they, they gave us these toy guns, and, and, and if you were really high-tech, instead of saying, bang, you had rolls of red caps, and the red caps had little spots in them with a little tiny bit of gunpowder, so that if you squeeze the trigger, it hit that pap, and it made a a pop noise, like a gun going off. And we had cap, I mean, that was really high tech, right? That was, you were really living the dream when you had a cap gun. And some of the big boys saw me coming and sold me about an inch or two of caps for a dollar. I don't know the exact numbers, it was a long time ago. You know, when you're that age, you think 10 dimes is worth a whole lot more than four quarters. I mean, you don't know, right? It's just, you're, you're, you don't get it. So I had given them all of my savings, you know, and, and for just a handful of caps. And I went home and said, look, mom, look what the guys up the street sold me. She said, how much did they sell that for? And I told her. And the next thing I know, my mom, many of you knew her, who on her tallest day was five foot nothing. And then by the time you knew her, shrunk to about four six my little mom tiny dainty sweet grabs that roll of caps and goes marching up the street finds the big boys and gets a full refund <laughs> a big refund because love doesn't rejoice in evil her love for me wasn't going to tolerate the fact that uh, that kind of injustice for me. all I'm thinking is well, do I get my caps? You know, but, but when you really love something, you become a defender of it, right? That's what it says. But love also, also, also rejoices in the truth. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. 
Paul is speaking of his own circumstances. He's in prison and says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. You get what's going on? Paul is in prison, and he says, some of my friends are out preaching the gospel because they want the work to go on. But can you believe it? There are some who are actually doing it, but because by doing it, they're stirring up trouble, and they're hoping they'll make my life worse. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. See, in in Scripture, the truth is so important that we celebrate it even when it's under difficult circumstances. For Christians, truth is always our friend, and love always embraces truth. Someone said uh, last night on the Saturday night service where it's a smaller crowd and, and so I, I opened it up to questions. We had a lot of fun. It's my returning to my old days as a Sunday school teacher. It was a lot, uh, um, and someone said, well, what about speaking the truth to hurt people? Well, it doesn't say you always speak the truth. It always says you always delight in the truth. There are some things that are true that don't need to be said, but the truth is always ultimately our friend, Right? And love will always rejoice in the truth, even when it's hard. It wants that truth. And and if you think about it, much of what we think of with marriage counseling is these two issues. Uh, Relational counseling is, is helping us learn how to face the truth in a way that's not intentionally harmful. And it's right and just. These are foundational to what it means to learn to love someone else. And they're, they're taught throughout Scripture. So what do the words mean? Well, the word for doesn't delight in evil, that word uh, can mean evil and injustice, like someone's selling caps to a little boy for way too much money. 2 Corinthians 12, 13 is a wonderful example of how it's used. Paul says he's defending himself with the Corinthian church, and he says... How did I treat you like you were inferior to other churches except that I was never a burden to you? He said, so I did you a really bad thing. I never let you give me money. I I never, now that's a televangelist. I never let you give me money. And then he says, forgive me this evil. Now it's dripping with sarcasm. But the point is, he's mocking the fact that they call it an injustice when in fact he did it all for them for free. That's an example of what that word can mean. Um, and what about truth? Second uh, Corinthians 4 verse 2, uh, he says, Rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, we plainly, we recommend ourselves to every conscience in the sight of God. It is the truth that commends. It is the truth that commands. By the way, Scripture uh, makes a distinction between preachers who tickle the ears and preachers who tell the truth. Some of the most famous preachers are famous because they tell people what they want to hear. What you want as you look at the next guy is someone who will tell you the truth, right? It's a huge distinction. 
But most of the time, when commentaries look at verse 6, they believe it's specifically addressing the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've already talked about 1 Corinthians 5. That's where, remember, in verses 1 through 5, Paul calls out the Corinthian church because there is an immoral relationship in the church which they've allowed to go on, an incestuous relationship which they have chosen to look the other way and apparently kind of took pride in how modern they were in their thinking. In other words, they, they didn't understand that in the body of Christ, there is a place for righteousness. So he addresses that in verses 1 through 5. And then in verse 6, he says, but your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may now, you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Okay, let me tell you what's going on there. He says, he's going to refer to the Passover meal. If you remember the Passover, that's when God redeemed the nation of Israel, Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he instituted the Passover meal. And they killed the Passover lamb and put the blood on the lamppost so that the angel of death would pass over their houses. But in the Passover meal, the bread is unleavened. Practically, it was unleavened because when you put yeast in bread, you have to wait for the dough to rise. It takes time. And the whole lesson was, you got to be ready to go at the drop of a hat because I'm going to redeem you. So don't put leaven in that bread. You don't have time to wait. But Scripture takes it a step further because leaven, more often than not, is used as a metaphor for evil. And the point he's making is, just as it takes very little yeast to leaven a lot of bread, it takes very little evil to pervert a whole lot of people. The reality is, and this is one of the tensions of the body of Christ, the body of Christ welcomes sinners, right? The gospel is for sinners. You don't have to meet righteousness uh, standards in order to become a Christian. That's the very point. We can't. Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. He did what we could not do. But in the body of Christ, the intention of God is that we create a safe community that is serious about obedience to God because that is safe. And, and, and because the Corinthian church was choosing to look away from this stubborn refusal to leave a life of disobedience, incestuous sin, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't you understand that that little bit will harm you? The, the subject is in, in biblical circles is called church discipline. How do you deal with an, a problem with sin that is unconfessed and stubbornly refused to change? I want you to know our elders have repeatedly dealt with these kinds of things. Normally it happens behind the scenes. Best case, you go to someone and say, this isn't right, and they choose to change. Uh, what more often happens is they go to another church and tell people, I just don't like the preacher at Grace. He's just not very good. But the reality is, in a city like Dallas, more often than not, when you go to someone, and, and not judgmentally, in all humility, but say, brother or sister, this is bad, more often than not, they'll just slide away because we can't. By the way, if you're from a denominational uh, church, that's why you transferred your letter. 
by transferring your letter, the old church had to recommend you that you weren't scooting out the back door because of an unconfessed sin. Um, Bible churches, we don't do that. So, it is a fact that God intends for the local church expression to be a place where people are trying to be obedient. Now, do we do it perfectly? Of course not. Are we a mess? Of course we are including your pastor, we all struggle in it. But, but the intention is that as we fellowship together, we don't look the other way when there is public refusal to live a, a, an obedient life, right? And that's what the Apostle Paul is discussing. So he says, get rid of that old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Why? Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why is it worth doing? Because Jesus died for our sin. Given the price that God paid for our sin, why would we stubbornly choose to live in that sin? Therefore, let us keep the festival. He's gone to the whole idea of the Passover. Not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, the sin that easily besets us, but instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the words sincerity and truth mirror 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Sincerity here meaning pure motives and truth. Love, love doesn't rejoice with evil. Love rejoices with the truth. And I think this passage can be uh, assigned, that phrase, verse 6, can be assigned to all of the evils in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, but it particularly applies to that one. So what do we do with this love and evil and truth? Um, we recognize that love is morally neutral. Love is not philosophically neutral. But that, that for love, truth matters. And for love, what is good matters. Let me tell you another story. Um, I was in the fourth grade in 1963, November 22nd, 1963. I was in Mrs. Pruitt's class in Bell Elementary. And if you're a history person, you know that that was the day that John Kennedy was shot in Dallas. And I'll, I'll never forget it because... because Everybody was abuzz in Texas because the president was coming to Texas. That didn't happen very often. And, and there were those who weren't his fans, but still, it was the president coming. And, and I remember when Mrs. Pruitt announced to our class that President Kennedy had been shot. And one boy, and I can't remember which one it was, cheered. And Mrs. Pruitt went nonlinear on him, as she should. But I think I know what happened. I think he was probably from a family that, that didn't vote for President Kennedy. And I think in their family, when they would talk about their disapproval of, of his policies and everything, a little fourth grade boy took that speech as meaning that somehow he was evil and didn't deserve to live. And, and so somehow, in the course of that kind of discussion, this little boy thought it was okay to cheer something so horrible. See, 
we can have our opinions. We can have our disagreements. But, but as believers, we're called, even in our speech, to season our words with that which is true and that which is good. Because what we say is not only reflecting on us, but it's a reflection on our God and what he values. Love doesn't rejoice in injustice. Love delights in that which is true. And part of the problem is ideas are easier to love than people. Have you ever thought of that? Ideas are much easier to love than people because people are so inconsistent and so there, right? And sometimes we can get so caught up in these ideals and these ideas of truth, and well, we should. We, of all people, should be passionate and uncompromising in our commitment to the truth, but we dare not get to the point that we can then rejoice in anything that's evil. Because in God's world, those two never conflict. What did Jesus do? The one who is ultimately good died for all of us who were thoroughly evil. And hanging on the cross, what did he say? Lord, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Love is deeply committed to the truth. Most of us aren't near enough committed to the truth. In fact, we're lazy with it. We don't work hard to find out the truth. We choose one source and believe it without struggling to find out what is fully true. But love never allows its commitment to the truth, cause it to embrace evil. Because when we do, we deny the very truth we hold to. Let's pray. Father, we confess that First of all, we're used to evil. It doesn't shock us the way it does you. And so when we say and do things that are less than loving and kind, that don't reflect your gospel, we're not surprised because that's the world in which we live. And Lord, we confess that sometimes truth is hard. And even when it's not, it's, it's evasive. But love always seeks the truth, even when it's hard. Father, I pray that we would be a people that never delight in evil, but always celebrate the truth. Because when you gave your son, you showed us the truth, and you defeated evil. In his name we pray. Amen.